Hello, and welcome to our podcast on Research Matters, hosted by UNICEF's Office of Research at Innocenti in Florence, Italy. I'm Kathleen Sullivan, Communication Specialist with UNICEF Innocenti, and I'm joined today by our own Research and Evaluation Specialist on Child Protection, Alina Potts. Alina is an expert on research examining the intersection between intimate partner violence and violence affecting children in emergencies. And today we'll be talking to her about her recent blog titled, Nobody Will Answer You If You Talk, The Case for Research on Trafficking in Emergencies. To start things off, uh, welcome Alina. I'd like to go back a bit to learn a little bit about your background working in humanitarian crises and how that's not only influenced your career in research, but also your recent blog post calling for more research in trafficking in emergencies. You start your blog discussing your time working on emergency response in northern Syria four years ago, and you vividly describe the scene of more than 100,000 refugees trapped in makeshift camps strewn among parched olive groves on the border. In Syria, your job is to rapidly assess women and girls' protection needs and to develop programs to respond to them. Could you tell us a little bit more about your experience there? Sure. So I'm very happy to be speaking with you today. So this this blog is based on my experience responding in northern Syria in 2013. So I was working with the emergency response team of an NGO. Um, and this was a time when, you know, the crisis was still relatively new. And one of the things that, that we prioritize in emergencies is um, the safety and dignity of women and girls. And so my focus and a lot of my work in humanitarian response has been on gender-based violence. In this case, in, uh, in these conditions, people were, you know, sleeping out in the open, olive groves, um, very little protection, often having to maybe even pay someone to stay on the land that they were on. And people were moving very quickly and very rapidly, uh, and there weren't many actors um, there at the time to coordinate the response, although there was a lot, there, there continues to be a lot of work by Syrians themselves um, to, to respond in that uh, emergency. So my, my work was really on ensuring that uh, the basic requirements for women and girls to be safe as they fled fighting were in place and as they sought refuge along the Turkish border. So what exactly does this mean? Uh, a lot of it is very practical matters. So safe toilets and washing facilities, confidential health services, particularly for survivors of violence, uh, access to information often is something that um, women and girls particularly may have less access to, and this may really put them in harm's way. And then of course, working with um, my colleagues and others who are providing um, water and sanitation facilities who are setting up uh, camps for people to live in to make sure that they're doing that in a way that is not putting women and girls at further risk and actually thinking ahead and thinking, um, you know, what do we already know about how to keep people safer and how to particularly keep women and girls safer in these situations. So a lot of it involves coordination and working together to ensure that this is on everybody's radar. Did you see the successful scale-up of some of the programs you established, not only there, but have you seen an expansion of these programs worldwide? Are you seeing a lot of progress being made here, or do you think you know, this, this program that you did was four years ago, four-plus years ago? Do you think we've made progress in general in the last five years, or do you think we're still struggling, in, you know, generally speaking, in meeting the needs of, of women and young girls? especially in this context, in humanitarian crises? 
The year before, I had been deployed to Lebanon to do a similar job. So basically to look at starting gender-based violence programming, meaning programming to prevent and respond to it, uh, for Syrian refugees in Lebanon and also for um, Lebanese people as well as Palestinian refugees and others there. So really for, for everyone who might need access to those services, but very much triggered by uh, the war and the entry of, of refugees into Lebanon. And so that now is five years ago. So having worked there, um, let's say at the start of the crisis, having worked um, in northern Syria as well, and then going back to Lebanon last year, um, so five years later, it's been really interesting to see what's progressed and what hasn't. Mm. So I would say on the one hand, we have uh, done a tremendous job in terms of um, producing guidelines, for example, around caring for child survivors in these contexts um, and really ensuring that people are trained and that we're building up, uh, let's say, the social service workforce in, in places where um, perhaps this was already a need. And we're working um, with a tremendous number of Lebanese and Syrian women and men to address these issues. And so you can really see the growth and the professionalization um, in those who are working to better uh, protect and respond to the needs of women and girls. I think on the other hand, we see that a lot of the, let's say, material realities of refugees, of displaced people, um, are not necessarily getting better and are in some cases getting worse. So what do I mean by this? For example, for those who um, perhaps are renting apartments, are renting homes, uh, their savings may be running out. You know, they may have now several years in which they haven't been able to work or at least to work legally. Mm. Um, a lot of people living in camps, I think camps are meant to be a temporary solution and then increasingly become a protracted solution. And so often these are in the land that is not necessarily wanted or needed otherwise. So it might be land that floods regularly, for example. Um, and Lebanon and Syria get very cold. I can attest to this. I think one of the most difficult aspects of my job in Lebanon was actually keeping my team and our uh, the people accessing our services uh, relatively warm because it was just so cold and so difficult to kind of get fuel and keep the stoves running. So I think um, those realities haven't changed. And this is why, you know, alongside humanitarian action, we really need diplomatic solutions to uh, conflict. And then also increasingly, we're understanding that conflict and natural disaster aren't necessarily separate. So, you know, we can see how um, conditions in Syria prior to the war and um, and even some of the environmental impacts of, of really having a lot of people living in very small spaces can impact on water quality, can impact on air quality. Um, and so I think this is kind of something that we're beginning to see um, is not so disconnected from the things that actually put people at risk of harm and, and may actually be associated with violence. So I think that there's... Again, there's progress made. I think a lot of people should be very proud of that progress, but we cannot cease being vigilant. And we see especially, I think, the global um, dialogue now around sexu sexual exploitation, around sexual harassment, around violence against women in general, even in context where um, 
there's no crisis. <laughs> you know, it's a it's an everyday thing. And so I think the the thing to remember is in crisis settings, this is going to be exacerbated in some way. So your blog post was specifically about trafficking in humanitarian crises. And um, going back to your experiences in Syria and Lebanon, uh, I wanted to ask, uh, were these where it dawned on you that there is a massive gap in research and evaluation on trafficking? And could you tell us a little bit more about what you saw that made this need for research so obvious? Sure. So... To be honest, at the time um, when working as an emergency responder, I was not thinking about research at all. <laughs> you know, my my priorities um, were extremely practical, a lot of problem solving, a lot of trying to get services up and running very quickly. And so it's really been, that was at what we call the acute phase of response. Mm-hmm. So when there's um, an emergency that, you know, has just begun and really we're focusing on life-saving activities including response uh, to gender-based violence so it's really been in the intervening years um, when the need has become very apparent Um, there as i said there's a very large humanitarian infrastructure in place now so this is no longer a new or acute crisis it's what we would call a protracted crisis and that is in place alongside some diplomatic efforts to end the crisis but reports of ad hoc and organized trafficking continue to trickle up. And at this point, we really have to wonder how much worse things are, considering what was already apparent at the outset of the crisis five years ago, and considering that now over half of the Syrian population is displaced, which is a tremendous, tremendous uh, figure. Right. So, and many have, as I said, little of their own resources left and little access to livelihood or to safe movement. Can you touch a little bit on what you mentioned in your blog as just some examples on um, how these emergencies create an environment that is more vulnerable uh, for women and girls to be trafficked? Sure. And I do just want to say it's really important to be clear that I'm we are talking about women and girls in relation to trafficking for sexual exploitation. And the UN Office on Drugs and Crimes 2016 Global Report pulls out very clearly that the vast majority of human trafficking victims are women and girls, 71%. Right. One-third are children. And that trafficking is very gendered. So women and girls are mostly trafficked for marriage and for uh, sexual exploitation or sexual slavery. And men and boys are more likely to be trafficked for exploitative labor or including as soldiers or porters or other things so just to to be clear about that and to also say that um, often trafficking is seen as an existing problem that doesn't necessarily concern humanitarian uh, actors because in many places it is an existing problem but what's important here is how crisis can exacerbate or trigger uh, trafficking Right. And and in your blog, you mentioned that it's too often seen as a pre-existing condition, but not recognized widely enough as something that can be prompted by a crisis and and how and how emergency conditions and camp environments can actually create these vulnerable situations, especially for women and young girls. Yeah, exactly. So one big reason for this is the breakdown of the rule of law. 
Right. Um, and this may mean that when there were institutional mechanisms in place to keep people safe, these may um, be out of commission. This could be also um, a time when impunity and criminal activities may rise um, because, again, those institutional mechanisms aren't there. And there are also settings where the government may be a party to conflict um, or where the government, we saw after the Haiti earthquake, you know, the, the government completely devastated itself um, by the impact of the earthquake. Um, so there's many reasons for that. But what we know is that really critical risk factors here um, are when people start relying on what we call negative coping mecha mechanisms or survival strategies that are very risky for them. So what does this mean? Um, this could tie to some harmful practices that may actually be uh, somewhat disappearing. So I, I bring up in the blog the example of, of child marriage mm. or forced marriage. This can actually be seen as a negative coping mechanism. So uh, in some way, a choice that perhaps is not the desired choice, but what seems like the best choice for accessing maybe shelter or um, getting to a safer place. These are the things that um, we particularly see rise when, for example, access to economic opportunities is denied or very difficult for refugees and for other people affected by conflict. Uh, so these issues are very much within the remit of humanitarian actors. Um, and my blog is, is focusing on how, as you said, the response itself. So in terms of how shelters allocated, how distributions are organized, often we pick community leaders or others in power, but we don't quite know perhaps, um, you know, what's going on in those relationships of power that then allow other people to access the materials they very much need. Right. Um, and, and that gives some ground and some opportunity for exploitative situations to arise. And I think that's what we have to start um, putting a sharper focus on. Yeah, well said. So related to that, I was hoping we could also dive into one issue you raised in the blog, which is this murky condition crises create where it becomes more difficult to define what constitutes consent versus desperation. You give some good examples in your blog, um, but I'm wondering, how do you think research can help the situation? Yeah, so this is something that um, I will say a few things about. It's a big, it's a big topic, but as someone who's worked um, a lot in gender-based violence, in the ways that uh, children are affected by armed conflict as well. I'm very interested in power. And women and girls navigate extremely dangerous situ situations in their daily lives all over the world. Um, but this is, again, exacerbated in many ways in emergencies. And so it may not mean, for example, that a woman or a girl is consenting in that she's not freely agreeing to do something but she may be making choices that offer the best path of action that she can see at the time. And so I think that's an important distinction, understanding that because someone may at some point agree or decide um, a course of action, it does not mean that they're necessarily freely consenting to it. Right. And I think this is brought out in the definition of trafficking internationally um, Somewhat, as IOM says very well in their report on addressing human trafficking and exploitation in times of crisis, the clear boundaries and the definitions of human trafficking are a big hindrance to giving better guidance around it. And they really bring out these gray areas between gender-based violence, between exploitation, including exploitation of children, and abduction. 
and how a lot of uh, countries in which we're working don't actually have national definitions either. So I think that there's a lot of, um, let's say, cracks <laughs> that this can fall through. And I think um, before maybe talking more specifically about types of guidance, I would say in general, in terms of research, this is where uh, feminist research techniques and qualitative methods can really be instrumental in unpacking how power manifests in, around these decisions and in, in, in these situations and also in bringing out the voices of the women and girls affected. So we can see these as a critical, uh, let's say, package for conducting research in a way that doesn't further disempower people, but actually offers opportunities for dignity and for voice. You mentioned that standards and tools to address trafficking do exist, but that more guidance is needed to meet the most vulnerable in order to prevent trafficking. Could you elaborate a bit on what kinds of tools and guidance you think are needed? Sure. So again, my focus here is on trafficking for sexual exploitation. And for this, the Interagency Standing Committee Guidelines for Integrating Gender-Based Violence Interventions and Humanitarian Action. Uh, so a very long title, but basically <laughs> to say the, the set of guidelines the humanitarian community has agreed around how to address uh, gender-based violence. These were updated and released in 2015, and they offer really excellent guidance on how all of those working in emergencies, whether it's to provide health care or shelter or cash-based aid, uh, for example, have a responsibility to mitigate risk for women and girls within their programming. But as I mentioned, um, there is this gray area. So while gender-based right. violence guidelines offer some um, help and support, it's not enough. And I think also while we see, for example, within the different sectors in emergencies, so child protection being another sector, uh, there's also guidance there. There's what, again... And a, and a lot of overlap. A lot of overlap. Mm -hmm. And also what um, IOM and others have termed a protection gap. So mm -hmm. there's overlap, and then there's also, in some ways, um, perhaps not clear accountability streams of, of who may be taking the lead on a certain issue. There may even be definition, definitional or uh, terminology disagreements that can actually affect our ability to coordinate better. So I think here, um, this is where we can see these two hindrances in terms of the lack of clear definitions, both legally um, at the national level and really definitions used by different organizations. Um, and also the lack of uh, formal response mechanism. So often this is not necessarily a type, um, an issue that, that one might have a lot of ways of responding to in a non-crisis setting. Right. Um, and this can be even more difficult for the reasons I brought up before. So I think a lot of the um, work that I've I've hyperlinked to in the blog. Um, for example, the reports by the Freedom Fund on modern slavery and trafficking contact in conflict. Um, the reports by Caritas France, uh, based on their uh, tremendous work um, in these contexts, and by the International Center for Migration Policy Development. All of these offer some really clear uh, policy and practice recommendations, and I would I would offer two things, two suggestions, really um, to layer with those. And so the first would be that context-specific guidance and mechanisms are needed 
and that we need to think about how these are generated. So mm. really, we need to focus on building coordination, building systems for safely exchanging information and learning among the actors working on this issue in a particular context. And I want to be clear here that there may be real sensitivities for humanitarian actors to work with justice and security actors, um, particularly in conflict settings. What kinds of sensitivities? Um, for example, there may be a lack of trust that information will be exchanged and kept confidential. Mm. Um, there may be situations where some accusations or there are some um, evidence that justice and security actors are themselves party to a conflict. Right. Um, this can be very difficult. But I think that for this reason, I don't want to be too prescriptive, but more to say that this will look different in different settings and that it may necessitate time for trust and relationship building between those actors and really recognizing that in non-emergency settings, the criminal justice uh, sector, particularly law enforcement, um, is one of the lead actors working on trafficking. Um, and so in addition to that, I would say that we and integrated actually with that, I would say we do need to focus on training and awareness raising within the humanitarian community, both about, uh, both in order to combat the myth that this isn't happening or that it's not at all tied to emergency conditions and also that it's not a priority. And it, and it really is, we have, I don't wanna use too much humanitarian jargon, but we do have um, an agreed definition uh, from the Central Emergency Relief Fund around what a life-saving activity is. And I think IOM makes a great argument for why addressing trafficking falls under that definition. And while that may sound a bit boring or irrelevant, it's really important to have that agreement and to have that um, put forward because that is the only way that the structures will then be put in place to prioritize it. So you've already touched a little bit on how some organizations like Caritas France and IOM have already built a lot of tools and suggested a lot of policies and frameworks for addressing trafficking in emergency situations. But I'm, I'm also wondering what other kinds of systematic institutional responses do you think should be put in place and how research can help facilitate a better response in general to prevent trafficking in emergencies. Yeah, so I'm glad again to highlight the work of IOM and Caritas France and to say that this work was really the result of those agencies doing their own research and looking across their responses over years or even decades, digging not only into the data but also tapping into their own staff's knowledge and expertise. And I think that this is exactly the practice we must continue but in a more coordinated and systematic way. Um, you know, research, it may sound uh, quite academic or ivory tower, but really my definition of good research is taking the time to look for answers to the questions that we deem vital. And so in this case, questions that could be life-saving. Uh, I think there's value in further mapping or synthesizing the existing body of research around the forms trafficking takes and how these differ in emergencies, 
um, and also when looking specifically at trafficking for sexual exploitation. So there's been great documentation um, of this already, including by some very brave survivors willing to talk about their experiences. And this has increasingly come to the fore uh, in international dialogues and discussions, including at the UN Security Council. So I think the weight is now shifting to research on the ways in which the actual responses put in place to protect people may cause them to make decisions that can lead to further harm. Um, and this is exactly the, the point made um, through the blog. And I think really what I'm saying here is taking a good, honest look at what's not working within our current paradigm of responding, um, at what is working so we can build on it, and doing that in a way that doesn't put women and girls who are already most at risk for trafficking, for sexual exploitation, at risk of further harm. So are there any interventions you think are showing signs of promise for helping to prevent trafficking in emergencies? Are there any specific case studies being done now or recently that you think are paving the way for better solutions and better data? I think the, the case studies linked to in the blog through the reports um, that we've already talked about, I think those are really, really important. Mm. And a lot of learning can be done based on those case studies. I would even argue... Um, if not already being done, to think about ways we could develop trainings around these case studies and really turn these research tools into action tools. And so for me, that is the that intersection between research and practice is what I'm particularly interested in. Mm. Uh, knowing that a lot of times actors don't have the time to read <laughs> reports and, and there's so much guidance out there. And so how can we really... Um, ensure that it's getting into the hands of the right people and that it's being used to actually inform the response. So I think in terms of best practices and things that could be improved upon, I would, I'm particularly interested in capturing knowledge from practitioners, especially from long-serving national staff, so meaning practitioners from the countries in which they're working, and ensuring that we are incorporating that into our guidance. Are there any further resources you want to suggest to our listeners for accessing some of these guides uh, in addition to the links you mentioned on your blog? Yeah, I would say that for those interested particularly in humanitarian response, um, I won't get into a big explanation of what the cluster system is, <laughs> but I will say that the... Um, Two particular areas within the protection cluster are the gender-based violence area of responsibility and that looking at child protection. And so each of them have websites upon which you can access a number of resources and briefs and explanations. Um, so these are really valuable resources for people to know about. There's also in each humanitarian crisis generally a website run by OCHA the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs mm. that collates and collects all of the information relevant to that crisis that gives information on the humanitarian actors, on the, the agencies and the cluster leads. So all of this has really been, let's say, made more public and accessible than in the past because of technology and because of a really concerted effort to do that by a number of people. And then just finally to say that, again, the GBV guidelines are a great resource, and they have their own website, um, gbvguidelines.org, I believe, and also the agency that I formerly worked with, um, International Rescue Committee, we put all of our gender-based violence resources online as well, 
at gbvresponders.org. Mm. So there's some useful um, guides, training tools, etc. usually in English and French and increasingly in Arabic and other languages as well. Great. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for joining us for those out there listening. Please read Alina's fascinating blog that we discussed today. We have a shortened URL where you can access it easily at bit.ly slash research emergencies. You can also follow Alina on Twitter at Alina underscore POTS. And uh, for more research in humanitarian settings, please visit our website at UNICEF Innocenti, also at a shortened bit.ly link, bit.ly slash humanitarian research. And you can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash UNICEF Innocenti. Thank you all for joining us. And thank you, Alina, for being our guest today. We really enjoyed learning about everything you had to offer and guidance for how we can do more research on trafficking and humanitarian crises. Thank you, Kathleen, for the discussion. And I hope to be talking more maybe with some of the listeners and exchanging and learning from them as well. Thank you.